This is where we uncover the simple traditions that successful business owners are doing every day to build a successful home life while still taking the lead in their business. Let's get started. Welcome back, everybody, to the Successful Parents Podcast. I'm your host, Wanda Howard, and today we have with us Chris Lake. He was a special educator in that field and his story. I love the podcast platform because I actually was just introduced to Chris. We met through the web. He came onto my show, and now he's been able to tell me a little bit about his amazing story and why he does what he does, but he has this amazing um, community of care that is really has so many branches to it that is really there to help lift the people in this world. And he is coming out with a book right now that is called How to Help Your Toddler Meet Their Milestones One-on-One and Behavior Hacks. So I'm excited. Chris, please tell us all about what you do and how you got started into this world of parenting and why you're passionate about it. Wanda, thank you so much for having me. Uh, it's a pleasure to be here, and uh, I love the intro. That was lovely. I, I started working with kids with special needs by accident. I was going to school um, to study psychology, and originally I wanted to work with people who were depressed. And in my undergrad, we trained mice in our experimental psych class to use a little water fountain. At the end of the class, if I said, if you guys like this and you want to apply this in the real world, there's a job opening or a volunteer opportunity working with kids with autism in Crown Heights, Brooklyn. Um, so I thought to myself, that sounds like an opportunity. Let me check it out. I start working there. I connect very well with kids as I've worked with kids since I was 14 years old, last 26 years. And after three weeks, they offered me a job and that job turned into a career. Um, as I worked with kids with autism, every classroom that I came across, I'd come across kids with lead poisoning. And that made me have more and more questions. And this was well before Flint. So I was kind of on my own in any research that I was doing. <clears throat> and if I approached people, most people thought the problem wasn't an issue um, because it went away in the 70s. So as I did my research and as I met people, I realized I can serve the community best by informing people more of ways they can help decrease the amount of lead in their system if they employ proper diet. And I I sought to find a way to do this. A friend of mine invited me to a a fashion show shortly after I had a graduation ceremony. And I'm going to pause and tell you a little bit about the ceremony and why it's so important to me. It was was my first year as a head teacher. Just got my master's degree, got my first classroom, eight kids, lovely children and, and Bushwick, Brooklyn. And one of the kids had a very high lead level. And I noticed from working with kids lead poisoning before that were literally in every classroom that I've worked with that they have a different set of challenges. It's a bit difficult for them to emotionally regulate. It was always much more difficult for them to acquire speech. Um, As we talked about earlier, the difference that I've noticed personally working with kids that I've seen, kids with autism, would show me after a few weeks that they had some vocal ability that they could talk, but either chose not to, were comfortable, or just didn't feel they were ready. But the opposite was true for kids with lead poisoning. They wanted to talk, but couldn't. And, and I felt that they were trapped in their body and my heart really went out to them. I also noticed that while kids with autism could make progress, fairly consistency with the ABA therapy that we provide, which is evidence-based, we track it, we have data, we graph it, we can show month by month how this child has performed across a percentage um, and, and a series of charts. The kids with lead poisoning, 
consistently stayed flat or regressed. If there was a three-day weekend, if there was a vacation for a week, it was virtually guaranteed the kids that had let boys in would come back as if it was day one of school. And it always frustrated me. I didn't understand why. At this point now, I realized they're re-exposed at home and the sense of a neurotoxin, it's just eating away. And one of the worst things that lead poison does is destroy the memory. So back to my graduating class, the student that had lead poison failed to show up to the graduation. And in my head, I saw him having an epic meltdown either on the way out the door as they were preparing. And the family said, you know what? We're just not doing this today. Whatever the situation was, I never saw the child again, never heard from the family again, and it really broke my heart. My first year as a teacher, my first class, one of my students just vanished. This led me to doing research about lead poisoning, and I came across a documentary, Hungry for Change, that discussed plant-based diets, which I'm a big fan of, big proponent of. Uh, ever since I started doing that, I found my personal information levels have dropped down a lot. My thinking has cleared up. I didn't know I had mental fog until I lost mental fog. And that's such an interesting experience, um, which we can get to later. But as I'm watching this documentary, the doctor on it says something simple and so casual, but it gave me truly a eureka moment. Dr. Mike Adams says, when you eat cilantro, it goes into your blood and eats toxic heavy metals and removes them. And I thought to myself, if this is the case and my student were to have had a functional dose of cilantro, would he have made improvements? Would, it, would he have been better? Is there a potential remedy in food that's not being considered? And as I did research, I realized that food isn't considered medicine in Western medicine um, and doctors can't even really push it. As, a, as I've networked more and more in this field, I've learned that it's not much touched on as in the pediatrics, when they're learning, they don't really discuss food as medicine. It's kind of considered kooky and new agey. So they'd rather not push it or even broach a conversation. Um, but I did my research. I, I studied as much peer-reviewed research as possible that was within the, the current window of three to five years. You always want your research to be within three to five years so that if anything refutes it, um, you're catching it. And, and I saw more and more, there were things that had promising results, but we still need more, still need more trials. Um, regardless, a few months later, a friend of mine invites me to a fashion show where I meet this woman who's in the industry, and we get to chatting. It turns out she's a lactation consultant, so she cares about babies, and I break down what my obsession has been for the last two months, and she says, whoa, we should throw a fashion show. We should tell the world, and I say, I'm about it. Let's do it. We set up a 5013C later. We, excuse me, 501c3 later. We then throw a fashion show two months after that. We had models, we had musicians, we had singers. Um, it was such a great time, but it didn't raise one red cent. We all lost a lot of money doing that because we invited the wrong crowd. Um, you know, from there, we kind of parted ways, but I still had ownership of the 501c3. And I said, well, I still want to do good. My, my loving wife encouraged me to, to consider rebranding. Um, because although Couture for a Cause was a catchy name and I was in love with it because I came up with it, obviously, right? You always fall in love with your own creations. Um, she said, it's not, it's not applicable. You're not running fashion shows anymore and you're not just going to donate clothes forever. So think of something else. So I went through iterations in my head and I landed on community for a cause because my goal was to have communities work together for a cause, for multiple causes, not just like poison. I saw, I saw the ability to expand this. Um, into multiple branches and have the community have ownership of the progress that they're making in their own community. 
a lot of times we're looking for a superman or superwoman to come along and rescue us from ourselves. Um, my firm belief is that, that God gave us the ability to help ourselves and that power works a lot faster when we work together. Um, and so that was kind of my vision when I came across this. And in doing so, as the years went on, I found other causes that I cared about that I wanted to advocate for. It's my baby. I said I can do whatever I want with this. And my goal was to protect and provide for those who are vulnerable and without a voice. And it started with kids with lead poison because they don't have a voice and not many advocate for them. There's plenty of people who advocate for autism. Not a lot of people before Flint that were really advocating for kids with lead poisoning. Um, so... I, and through our work, we actually had the National Institute of, uh, National Institute of Health change their, their posted elevated lead levels. I realized I could start lobbying, which was something I'd never done before, but I kept asking myself, well, what else can I do? Besides getting information out there, what can I do that's actionable? And I met with representatives, I met with senators, and I met with, um, I met with senators, I met with assembly members, and I asked if we can draft bills because the current way that we were testing for lead in New York was twice the national average. So while the national accepted value was five micrograms per deciliter, um, in New York, we accepted 10. We accepted twice as much as what the CDC was saying was safe. And I said, maybe we should bring it down to what the, yeah, yeah. Well, again, no wow. one's advocating. No one's advocating for lead poisoning. So no one's looking at this. And, and I realized this is something I could really run with because these people are in pain. They're in a lot of pain and, you know, from there, I realized that grassroots lobbying is something that's, if it's doable by someone like me, who is simply a special education teacher, teacher who simply called people and made appointments, it's something that anyone can do. And again, my goal is to keep having the community work together and, and make different changes. Um, as you made the point earlier, I branched out. So we have the special education branch. We also have a homeless relief branch, a storm relief branch. We created a sexual violence prevention branch as well as an environmental protection branch and work to do community building and, and peace building as well uh, when we're able. Again, it's myself, my wife, so my hands can be a little bit full at times, but I try to use lunch breaks or, or um, school breaks to, to reach out to different politicians to get um, legislation written, um, to get the ball rolling on things. You know, we worked with Senator Biagi in New York to actually get a voluntary intoxication bill um, pushed through Senate, Upgrade in the assembly. We worked with her to get a, a affirmative consent bill written on sexual assault that didn't exist in New York before. That was also in the assembly. Um, I'm working right now with another senator, Kevin Parker, to get the lead levels dropped down again because every time the CDC drops theirs, I want New York to drop theirs as well. We got to make sure that we're keeping current and there's no amount of lead that's good for you. There's no amount of toxins really that should be in our system. And I want people to be aware of that because sometimes. Um, talking heads might say, oh, it's okay if it's just a little bit, it's okay if it's just a trace, but there's so many different sources that the traces can come in from, they may not be calculating that cumulative effect, and, and that's always a concern for me. Wow, and that's so, so many things right there that make me think, one, how sad it is that we are just letting that in New York in our country, letting that just be normal, having it way higher than what is actually considered safe levels in our blood. But two, the question that keeps coming back to me is, I know the road of entrepreneurship. It's a hard road. It is turning and takes all these different twists and turns. And as you've shared with us, like one thing led to another, led to another. So why was it that you felt 
driven for this? Why haven't you stopped? What is it that specifically for you has kept you going after this? That's that's a great question. Why haven't I stopped? Um, let me tell you, I've thought about it. I, I've definitely thought about it. Like there was, um, there was, it took three years to get the lead levels dropped in New York. It took three years of lobbying for me to convince legislators that it's a good thing to simply lower the number that doctors test for. And for me, when I first started, I thought that was low hanging fruit. There was no financial cost to the government to change anything. They just simply had to edit the bill, edit the current law so that the digit says one number different. That's it. But three years, three years. And I, um, for me, the most valuable commodity in the universe is time. And the reason is because it's the only thing you can't get back. If you lose money, while you might not be able to get that specific money loss, you can get that value back. You can make money again. If you fall in love and for whatever reason you lose your love, you can fall in love again. But if you lose a year, if you lose two years of time, it's gone. It's gone. And as a special educator, that hits especially hard for me because I work with toddlers primarily. I work with kids all the way up to 21. But time lost with a child's mental development is staggering. Staggering. I work with two-year-olds who got special intervention and the difference between working with a kid who never received any special intervention whatsoever at two versus three. Shocking to me. What's even worse is seeing a child who's receiving special education service for the first time at four. That's heartbreaking for me. And, I, and every time I see this kind of pattern emerge, I'm like, we don't have the luxury of time when it comes to our kids' development. It's easy to, to look the other way. It's easy to say, oh, I'm sure it'll be fine. Or look at a child and say, I'm sure they'll figure it out. But not everyone does. And from what I've seen, there's a lot of stories that don't make the news that will never be in a movie, that aren't going to be in a book, that no one's advocating for, that, that break my heart. And once, as I told you before, there aren't many lead poisoning advocates, especially before Flint. Now we have some. Now we have some that we've heard of. But, and after in New York, we had a situation where they found out that kids were being poisoned in NYCHA buildings. And then people came out of the works and said, hey, we care about this. This is our family, yada, yada, yada. But at the same time, time is still being lost. Even today, when I know that the number could have been dropped down in the last legislative session and it wasn't, my head hurts thinking I got to wait six more months between when it ended to when I could start lobbying again for change. Because that's six months that some child, hundreds or maybe thousands of kids are being exposed, are being tested, and the doctor saying, oh, the level is fine. And that's not okay. And I think for me, the position I'm in knowing that if I stop, will certainly means someone else is suffering it binds me to this duty i can't stop i can't stop you know if, if i did i wouldn't be able to feel comfortable with myself i wouldn't i'd feel accountable at some point to myself to my daughter to my god i cannot stop i have to keep going i have to keep going i have to uh i love that response especially because i think in entrepreneurship, as business owners, people that are truly invested in making impact in the world, it is this God-given um, identity. It is something that's ingrained in us that when you come to the crossing road where it's like, well, do I stop? Do I keep going? There's something in you that cannot see a way forward without 
continuing down this path. So thank you so much for sharing that, Chris. Thank you. And so with growing this business, with having it reach the people, make this impact, what is it right now that your like main priority, your focus is to help spread the word about uh, lead poisoning or what is your main focus at this current point? So it's split. As, as I've told you, I we branched out and my focus is both on lead poisoning, which unfortunately for me means I have to wait until January. Um, and then also sexual violence prevention because the idea of advocating for those without a voice just keeps expanding for me. And once a, once a thought bubble says, hey, Chris, you could take care of these people too. I say to myself, you know, I guess I could. At least I can try. That's the way I look at it. At least I can try. And if it doesn't work, I have information to say, okay, that's not for you. That's not your link. If it does work or I, I get a taste and I like it, then I'm going to say, okay, how else can I attack this? And I've learned through the years that if it's not a continuous effort, that's still okay. I don't need to be perfect. If it's a little sloppy, that's fine. I still have to make the efforts and sharpen my craft. And some people join me. I get volunteers who come to say, hey, I want to help. I say, great. That's good. Let's let's find a way to make this happen. With with lead poisoning in particular, my goal is to actually get the bill that I had drafted rewritten because while the senator I'm working with kept it exactly as we originally discussed, the assembly member split it up into two bills. And in it's frustrating, right? Because when I first started lobbying, I didn't know what I was doing at all. I just figured, let me try. Um, but so at first I did a petition to the governor. I wrote a petition saying, Andrew Cuomo, you need to yada, 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 yada. And people signed it. I had people sign a, the petition. And then at a moment I thought to myself, Chris, what are you doing? Like, how does this work? You don't know how things work. You, 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 you jumped, you did ready, fire, aim, but you don't know how, know how things work. So let's think about this. I wrote a petition. How does that force the governor's hand? Does it? Does the governor write laws? No, Chris. So I had to go back to my third grade civics understanding of how government structures actually work. And I realized, oh, who writes the laws are senators and a senator and a senate member have to write the same exact verbatim laws for it to be passed in both first committee, then in their prospective houses, and then it's going to be signed by the governor. Once I realized that, that's when I started saying, okay, let me reach out to my local representative and yada, 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 yada. And they're people. I tell this story because I want anyone who's listening who's ever thought about advocating for anything, for any cause. It could be kids with lead poisoning. It could be elder abuse. It could be an environmental situation. It could be fill in the blank, right? People in Congress, people who are senators, people who are Senate members are people. They, they put their pants on one leg at a time. They accept people. Anyone who wants to meet with them, they'll make time for them. It might not be that week. You might have to wait several weeks to months, and that's okay. You might not meet directly with them, and that's okay, too. You might meet with their aide. That still counts. They're going to pass that information on. When I actually wrote the bill that got passed, I didn't write it with the senator. I wrote it with Senator Kemp Hannon's aide, Nick Marsala. And when I explained the story, he was like, oh, my, oh, man, this is, this is intense. We got to do something. I said, great. I'm so glad I met with you. You care, you know, and just, you just got to try. Um, but I uh, had a funny experience that I hope my listeners and your listeners understand the value of trying and, and not giving up as an entrepreneur, as a nonprofit, as, as a person with goals <laughs> and a standard of excellence. 
there was a woman who was the head of the Office of Children's Health Protection. And she was about to release a 17 interagency task force on lead poisoning in about 2017. And right as she was about to do it, then head of the EPA, Andrew Wheeler, removed her from her position. He said, we love what you're doing. We care about kids with lead poisoning. Stop what you're doing. And you're on admin leave. And she was totally confused. Her name is Dr. Ruth Etzel. Okay. She was totally confused. She's a 30 year veteran pediatrician and she didn't understand why she's been removed and they didn't give her a legitimate reason. She still works with the EPA, lovely lady. I wrote her an email. I wrote her an email to every single email address I could find the person. Eventually I found her snail mail address and I wrote her a handwritten letter to her snail mail address because I said, I need, you're the expert. You're the actual highest level of information on this that I can find. Let me see what your thoughts are. And two years later, Wow. <laughs> wow. Two years later, I get an email saying, hi, Chris, this is Dr. Ruth Etzel. You reached out to me two years ago. I was going through a tough time. And I just want to say thank you for your letter. And we started to have conversations and we still talk to this day. And, you know, I said what I'm trying to do in New York in terms of the laws. I said, that's great. But one thing that you want to consider is making sure that new moms, when someone has just realized they are pregnant, that they are informed of how to avoid lead. Because right now we're, we're tackling things from a post point of view. Like, oh, your kid has already been exposed. We want to look for how much they've been exposed. But avoidance is so much more valuable than, than fixing the problem, right? And so as a result, she actually helped me craft the language to write the bill that's in a New York Senate assembly right now. So unfortunately, I have to wait till January before they actually meet again. Yeah. Yeah, our, our system's a bit antiquated. They, um, and again, this also led me to understand, like, well, why, is the, why are they out for six months? Because when the government was born, they were farmers. That's <laughs> yeah. literally why there's legislative sessions that end in the summer, so they can go back home, return to the farm, take care of it, harvest in the fall, and then come winter, they can come back and be legislators. But, you know, obviously our, our current um, senators and congressmen and representatives are no longer farmers for the most part. <laughs> I can't imagine any are, <laughs> but we didn't see any reason to add work days to their schedule. Um, but even so, you know, going back to time lost, I have to be patient and say, okay, when we get back, my plan of attack is this, to make sure that both the center and center member are on the same page because it can't get past the language is not verbatim. Aside from getting that in line, the, the sexual violence prevention aspect of what we're working on is, is pretty near and dear to my heart because I realized that um, so often, these crimes are overlooked and so often survivors are not well taken care of by the law and small tweaks can make such a big difference and just changing language of law to be more fair and accountable, I think helps alleviate you know, a lot of hurt. Um, and so, you know, I work with different organizations. We work with RAIN, we work with the Cure Collective, they've been great. We work with Youth Against Sexual Violence. Um, working with the LGBT community too, because they're often left out of conversation. And I wanna you know, broaden the umbrella of people who are affected by this because often they are left without a voice and people don't know what to do or, or, or who to, to turn to. And um, you know, the next step is actually taking my charity to create pamphlets to help college kids prevent and be aware of consent, setting boundaries, red flags, strategies, and also giving talks come the fall so that new classes of show of students and colleges and universities have a better sense of what they should do and what they should not do in the event that some young men in particular don't realize what is not okay. 
And it's not to, that's not to say it's not their fault, but the more education a generation has, the less crimes we have. And so I'm gonna do my part to help educate those in that aspect. So those are my two goals. Well, that's awesome. And what a great rundown of everything on the plate. It's, it's definitely amazing how much when you start just getting in motion on one thing, it leads to a new realization, more understanding, more growth, more um, edification, just like you said, about how our country is run. I've had several different run-ins with just legalities that it's just what is done now. And it's like, oh, oh, that's interesting. So, so good. Um, so, but before we run too far down this rabbit hole, <laughs> I want to ask you, so what was it that your parents did that enabled you to have this um, ability to just keep going? It, you're a very upbeat person. You're able to just keep seeing the light and keep advocating for people without a voice. So what was it that your parents did to help you have a positive outlook when you're trying to fight something that may seem unheard for a while. Wow, uh, this is a this is an epic question. So, my mother is she's an immigrant from Jamaica who really made her own way. My father is from Harlem, and he was a professor for a long time, and he was also assistant DA for a bit of time. And my mother was a nurse who worked in the NICU. So she's part of my path. My mother's my pathway into caring for kids. My father's my path into being a teacher. He gave me that, that, that analytical, you know, how to teach mind. And when I was 13 years old, something happened that changed my family forever. My family and I used to love going to the Poconos to go skiing and go on vacation. And some years my dad would stay home to keep working. This one year in 1995, my dad stayed home and we, my brother, older brother and my mom, we all went. We're having a good time, skiing, horseback riding, doing some archery. And we're sitting down at dinner when the maitre d' comes to the table and says, there's a phone call for you, Mrs. Lake. And she, she leaves the table and she comes back. She has him sit in her lap and explains that our dad was just hit by two cars. Oh. And he's alive, but we have to go home and he's in a coma. So as it turns out, he came home from work that night. It was a rainy night. And when he crossed the road, someone hit him and they kept driving. So it was a hit and run. Oh. And as he was laying in the road, another car ran over him. So yeah, it resulted in, yeah, it resulted in both legs broken, a broken arm, broken ribs, fractured skull. And he was in a coma for some time. And it was, you know, our entire family was just put on its head. He was in the hospital for, God, I don't know how many months, but when he came home, they brought him home with the hospital bed and we had to take care of him from that point on. My brother and he had a rocky relationship. So I was basically his home attendant, taking care of most of his needs because my mom had to work um, extra shifts and make, make things work. My neighbor and my, at the time, my best friend, Elsa Dilo Dilo, his older brother, Donnie Dilo Dilo was a, physical therapist, so he actually helped my dad learn how to walk again. Wow. And I watched my dad have to learn how to walk again, and he never gave up. My dad had this refusal to give in to 
depression, this refusal to give in to what was me. And I'll be honest, I have to credit it to his, his relationship with God. Before he met my mom, and it gets kind of deep. So before my dad met my mom, and we only have so much time, so I can't get too much into his life story, but he was a monk. He was a Franciscan friar, and he lived in D.C. for quite some time until he came across a troubled youth one day, and it dawned on him, I could do more for this child as a lawyer than I could as a friar. He left, pursued his law degree, passed the bar, and, and went into the DA's office. Met my mom, the rest is history. But um, he still is the kind of person who watches mass every single morning. You know, he's the kind of person who's reading his, his, his Bible every single morning. He has his little side book and highlighting and making notes. And there's not a Bible in our house that doesn't have his, his side notes and the, the ledgers in the house, despite the fact that we have like 12, 12 Bibles in our house. Um, <laughs> Love it. Yeah. yeah. And, and his, his faith in God really got him through. And, you know, I, I credit my dad for giving me that. And I credit my mom for giving me her work ethic to be able to work 12-hour shifts, um, night shifts, day shifts, any shifts um, during that period to get us through. They, they were both tenacious. They both showed my brother and I grit. They both showed us a spirit of we don't have a choice to give up here. We have to keep going. Yes, this isn't fun. This isn't easy. And things might be tense, but we have to keep going. And they put that in both of our heads and they put that in both of our work ethics. Um, you know, people might try to call me a number of names. They'll never call me lazy. No one will ever be able to get away with that in any work environment I've ever been in. And, you know, I credit both of them for that. They, they gave me that can-do spirit. And, you know, life's too short to sit around not getting things done, in my, in my opinion. Like I said, time's a valuable commodity. You don't want to waste it. Uh, that's wanna... such a beautiful, beautiful testament to the gift that your parents gave you, but the reason why that uh, ability, that can-do spirit, like stays alive in you. What I'm hearing is the way that your parents interacted with each other and with you kids was an active relationship. It wasn't just a uh, stagnant, we're going to do what we can, you guys do your thing and we're not even going to involve you, but your family was actively involved in uh, preserving like life in and of itself, but it enabled you to not get into that um, victim mentality. And that's, that's incredible. So many people have heartbreaking situations happen and it's so easy to sink, sink down into that victimization. So that's amazing. Thank you. Thank you for sharing that. Thank you. And, um, you know, and my story isn't without pitfalls and, and sadness. You know, for a very long time, I personally struggled with depression. You know, that, that wasn't easy as a child to, to watch. That wasn't easy in my teenage years when you're supposed to be having sleepovers and playing with friends, having to give your dad shots and, and take care of his hygienic needs. I, as I said earlier, when I first went into my psych program at Queens College, my goal was to learn to be a therapist for people with depression because I was so I, I work with myself through my depression for so long that I was curious if there was another way um, today it would be known as CBT but that was before CBT was really uh, well known cognitive behavior therapy for any of your listeners who don't know and I had to work on myself to have this can-do attitude because there was a long chapter in my life when I did give up I gave up myself I gave up on on my dreams I gave up on believing in the future and eventually it dawned on me that Chris you know, going back to the same concept, Chris, you're wasting your time. 
you're wasting your time and you're not here for justice. You're not here to just live a sad, what was me life. You're not here to live an uninspired life. And I kept asking myself, okay, Kristen, what can I do? You know, I started asking myself different questions. What broke me out of my depression, broke me out of that victimhood mentality was stop being angry about how I felt I was wronged or cheated and start asking myself, well, what can I do? And it's in, it's in that can that I learned is such a great source of happiness. Dr. Martin Seligman uh, was one of the first to study depression. And this is before ethics, so I apologize beforehand for anyone who's listening. Uh, this part might get a little, not gory, but sad. They did a test on a dog. Okay, to test depression, they put a dog in a, in a room and on the floor, there was just one bench in the middle of the room and both sides were this, this grid, the, the dog was standing up. And so to flip a switch and where the dog was sitting would become electrified. Again, this is before ethics, it's highly unethical today, but they flipped the switch, the dog was, got mild shocks, not anything that's life-threatening, but enough shocks that it's painful. And the dog's first reaction is to jump over the bench to the other side and they found, oh, I'm safe. Great, that's nice. They repeated the experiment. They found every time that either side of the grid was electrified, the dog would simply jump over the bench to get to safety. And then he said, okay, let's try phase two. And in phase two, they electrified both sides. And they found, yeah, again, not ethical. What they found when they did this is that the dog would feel the shocks from one side, jump over the fence like they used to, because they learned if I jump, I escape this pain. And they would land into another side where they're getting pain and getting electric shocks. The dog would try to jump over the bench again and eventually what always happened was the dog would simply lay down. They would simply lay down and kind of just, just whine um, because they had learned helplessness. They had learned no matter what I do, I'm going to get hurt. And this is what he defined as depression. Now in phase three, this is the most interesting part of this very sad unethical study that should never be repeated. He said, okay, let's now go back to the first phase where only one side is electrified, okay? So now they flip the switch and the panel that the dog is sitting on is electrified and the panel across the bench is not electrified. And what they found was the dog just laid down and took it. They didn't try. They figured it doesn't matter what I do. Even though the circumstance had changed, the dog had learned it doesn't matter. If I jump over, I'm going to get shocked anyway, so I'm just going to lay right here and continue to get shocked. And that's, that is what depression is. It's that, and that's what that victimhood mentality is. There's very few people that I've personally come across with a victimhood mentality that haven't been victimized. They went through some sort of trauma, whether micro or macro or repeated, that has taught them no matter where I go, no matter who I trust, no matter what I say, no matter fill in the blank, something or someone's going to hurt me something or someone's going to take from me. And it's tricky because in order to break out of that, you have to do something that you previously learned doesn't matter. Yeah. You previously learned, if I try this, then nope, you got to try it. It's like dating, right? If you have, if you have a hundred bad dates, it doesn't mean that you're undateable. It just happens to mean that those hundred dates were bad. You, it, yeah. you could find a hundred and first one. Oh, there we go. There's the winner. I, um, the example of Colonel Sanders always stays in my head. The, the, you know, the progenitor of KFC was 67, 67 on social security, true story, before he decided to do something new with his life. At 67, he got a social security check and realized when he looked at the amount, this is not nearly enough for me to live off of. 
I can't do this. I can't live off of this, right? Well, what can I do? What can I sell? What can I have, okay, I know it. I have an awesome fried chicken recipe. That's all he had, the recipe. I have an awesome fried chicken recipe. And what I'm going to do is I'm going to go to a restaurant. I'm going to sell it, just a recipe, and that'll make me money. So he went to a restaurant and said, hi, I have an awesome ch fried chicken recipe. I like to sell it to you, and I just want a royalty. I don't even want you to pay me for it. I just want a royalty for every chicken that you sell from this recipe. And the restaurant owner was like, who are you? What are you, what are you talking about? Get out of here, crazy old man. And so he tried again, and he tried again, and he tried again. He went to 1,009 restaurants. Wow. <laughs> Colonel Sanders went to 1,009 restaurants before someone said, sure. Let's check out that recipe. And we see his product in every city in America for the most part because he did not quit. He cannot quit as an entrepreneur, as a parent, as a nonprofit, as a person. You cannot give up on your dreams. You cannot give up on your vision because it might take longer than you want, but God's timeline is not your timeline. And the trick is being comfortable in the discomfort and say, hey, I'm going to stick with this fake thing because I know what I have works. I know my chicken recipe works. I know personally that my work advocating is necessary. You know that you giving people a platform is necessary. You, as long as you know you're serving people, there's a value to it. You're bringing value to the table. And everyone who has that and is hearing this, who this connects with, never give up. A thousand and nine times. Never give up. Never. Wow, that's that's such an amazing story and perfect segue too to my next question and last question for this episode is what is it that you are doing right now as a parent and what can our listeners also apply in their lives to pass this kind of ability down to their kids? One that isn't this degrading, just hustle and grind, fake it till you make it, but actually fulfilling ability to rejuvenate that energy? Oh, great question. Um, and I could put in one sentence. I catch them being good. My kids, my students, my daughter, I catch her being good. And what I mean by that is find every excuse you can to praise your child specifically for doing things that you want them to do, specifically for reaching milestones. So when I say specifically, I don't mean Oh, good job, buddy. Mm, way to be. No, that's so nice. What a great picture. No, saying, ooh, did you draw a fish? I really like how you use orange and yellow there, just like that goldfish we saw in the video yesterday. That's more specific. That gives them more credit. Using praise is something that I've found with parent coaching that I do, uh, with staff that I work with, is not second nature to everyone. Um, if anything, sometimes parents will talk to kids with this exasperated energy, like, sit down, do this, give me this, come here, time to brush teeth. And then when the kid actually does what it is you're asking for, the parent's energy kind of has this conclusion of like, ugh, finally. And then the parent moves on, but that window is right when you can really nail that kid with reinforcement to ensure they'll do it next time. When you yeah. say, hey, thanks for listening, buddy. Hey, when I said, come here, you came here, thanks for doing the listening. Hey, good job letting mommy help dress you. Hey, good job. Fill in the blank. Kids crave attention and praise and power. And if you can give them attention and praise, 
for things that will empower them to be independent, that will empower them to grow, they will seek that. If they're getting attention and volume for things they shouldn't be doing, they're going to seek that more because kids love energy. They love attention. They don't necessarily care why. It's so much more interesting to see mom's eyes get so big that she can see all the whites of them and the pupils real small and a vein start popping out the neck and better yet the forehead then oh way to be buddy good job that's not as interesting right and so I, I i personally make it my goal to make sure that i am always high energy for the good stuff and low energy for the challenging behavior i learned no we don't do that that's not acceptable here's what we do do okay thank you good job Good, good stuff. Wow, I love how you're drawing. Wow, I love how you're sitting. Wow, I love how you finished your lunch. Wow, how you fill in the blank. I make, and it's fake at first. I tell my parents that I work with in, in my book, Help Your Toddler Meet Their Milestone, 101 Behavior Hacks. I, I lay this out to parents. Like, it will feel forced. It will feel fake at first, and that's okay. Find your way to do it because you're going to taper it off. It's just getting that hook in them to say, oh, I like how mom is interacting with me when I do X, Y, or C. I want to do more of X, Y, and C. If they don't like how you're doing it when you're being positive, then they like how you're doing it when you're being negative. So it's important that you're self-aware. It's important for me to be self-aware how I'm interacting with my daughter. It's important for me to be self-aware if I'm on my phone when I could instead be sitting down and playing with the magnets or the coloring or the books with my daughter. Self-awareness is key. Praise is key. Catching them being good is key. Ah, I love it. Thank you so much. So many good tips right there. So for everybody that is listening, thank you for coming and joining us today. Thank you, Chris. And we will see you all next time. I'm so glad that you were able to be here and discover more with us of what it means to be a successful parent. Be sure to hit that subscribe button and leave us a rate interview so that we can reach more amazing parents who are looking for ways to truly succeed with their kids too. Find me on Instagram or Facebook at WandaHoward.Live. If you're like, holy cow, this was amazing, but I have so many more questions, then send me a DM with your biggest takeaways and all of your questions. I'll be sure to take care of you. Have an amazing day and I will see you in our next episode.